The Graduate Center of the City University of New York presents Academically Speaking, an audio mini-series about the dissertation process, from planning and writing all the way to the defense, as told by Graduate Center students and faculty. This episode, we're joined by Ross Colebrook and Jesse Prince from Philosophy. I'm Ross Colbrook. Um, I uh, mostly work on metaethics, um, especially on the objectivity, universality of ethics, uh, whether ethics really matters at all. Um, and uh, uh, I'm also really interested in uh, moral psychology and uh, how that relates to the normativity of, of ethics. Um, and uh, yeah, at this point, I'm, uh, I'm pretty decent ways along in the dissertation. Uh, got drafts of the major chapters. Um, still working on uh, uh, building it up, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's coming along quite, quite nicely so far. I'm Jesse Prince. I'm in the philosophy program at the Graduate Center, and my work mostly involves the mind. So anything about how we think, feel, reason, understand, look, all of those things fascinate me, and I approach them with an interdisciplinary methodology that includes both tools of psychology and philosophy. So uh, the topics that have been of most central interest to me in, in recent years uh, include things like consciousness, concepts, perception, aesthetics, and maybe most of all ethics, which is the topic that brings us to this conversation today. Well, I actually wanted to come to the Graduate Center because I read one of Jesse's books uh, when I was getting my master's degree uh, uh, down at Texas A&M. So we, I took a class on metaethics and uh, read his uh, Emotional Construction of Morals and uh, really thought the arguments were interesting and took approached ethics in the right exactly what I thought was the right way and drew exactly what I thought were the wrong conclusions so <laughs> I really wanted to get involved in that and uh, it was a, a pleasure to get to come here and uh, interact with Jesse um, but uh, yeah so I think uh, I wanted Jesse to be my advisor from the beginning so I'm glad that that worked out yeah I would just add I mean um, Ross's arrival was like a godsend there are fields where you want students who are gonna kind of carry on the program that you've been engaged in, people who are committed to the same views that you've been defending. Philosophy isn't one of those fields, and um, unlike the sciences where maybe team spirit and collaboration on a project where you're in mutual agreement is the best way to move forward, in philosophy one of the best ways to learn and grow is to be confronted with critique. So to have somebody of Ross's talented energy arrive in the program who is on the opposite end of certain philosophical debates has been one of the most rewarding experiences of my teaching career. So it's been, it's been really great working with Ross. Advising is very often a conversation. There's a lot of 
criticism, feedback, red ink that, that goes into it. But really, I think for both uh, parties, the, the points that are most exciting are when you just have that those synergetic conversations where you're just bouncing off of each other. And in philosophy, again, it doesn't, doesn't necessarily require agreement, a common set of issues that interest you, that animate you, things you really care about figuring out and getting right. Um, can bring two people to the table, and when they try to sort it out in that conversational way, you really have a, a feeling that you're learning and growing. I actually think that uh, this is not a politically neutral uh, thesis, so I think there's good reason to believe that the uh, so uh, Jonathan Haidt has done a lot of great work on differentiating liberals and conservatives in terms of their, uh, their basic moral commitments. And uh, liberals, by, by and large, are more, more concerned and, in fact, exclusively concerned with harm, reducing harm and treating people fairly, however we specify that. Um, conservatives have a much more expanded uh, moral viewpoint um, that includes things like uh, uh, purity and respect for authority, uh, loyalty. Um, but I think that when you get down to it, despite the fact that these other more expanded moral concerns are, uh, are, are indeed likely a result of innate processes in the mind, nevertheless, the things that they're tracking in the real world are things that vary so widely between different societies that we ought not take them seriously. Um, that, in fact, the conservative expansion of morality is one that, when we really get down to brass tacks, we will find to be unjustified. Uh, so I think it is uh, something that has political implications. Um, and I think that uh, one thing I view my work as trying to do is provide a positive groundwork for a kind of uh, left or liberal critique of conservatism. Um, and I think that uh, uh, it's important to have not to let conservatives uh, own the, uh, the values <laughs> and the values war. So I would say when Ross first approached me about the project, he said, look, I don't know if moral realism is true, but I know that believing it's true impacts people's behavior. And he was really re responding to a series of empirical results that had come out of psychology that indicated that people who believed there were moral facts were more likely to behave in good behavior than people who were relativists. So this was just a, a simple practical point that we have a, a good reason to try to make a case for moral realism because it just promotes good behavior. But as the project evolved, it's, it's really gotten even more applied and practical than that. And I think for a relativist like me and for a lot of social scientists studying morality, when we see a political debate, say a debate between Republicans and Democrats, which is at bottom a moral debate, we just assume that both sides have equal claim to truth. No party is making mistakes. No party is evil. No party is dumb. And that the real problem with political discourse is not that one side is just stubbornly committed to falsehood, but rather that both sides have equal claim to truth and there can be no resolution. That's the relativist view. And it's a defeatist view. It's a view that says we really can't make progress on political debate. The best thing we can do is design societies where different perspectives can flourish. Now, Ross's view is very different from that. 
Ross actually thinks there's hope for making genuine progress on these debates. When you see political differences, at least in some cases, it may work out that one side is right and the other is wrong. And he's been making a very powerful and impassioned case for the value of philosophy and trying to determine where the truth lies in political and moral discourse. Another thing that comes to mind that the Graduate Center has is location. So um, not only is there a lot of uh, uh, a lot of benefit in terms of uh, uh, the interdisciplinary work that goes on in the GC, but uh, uh, I mean we're right in the middle of New York City, um, and I was able to take a couple of classes over at NYU. I know people that have taken classes at Columbia. Um, there are um, there's a, a program that allows us to do that for a couple classes during our, um, our graduate studies. Um, and it was uh, really helpful to get to know more people working in these areas uh, in the uh, philosophical uh, community in, in New York City. So uh, it's another great advantage that the, uh, uh, that the graduate center has. I think that there's no better place in the world to study philosophy than New York City. Maybe it's the best place in, in the history of Western thought because we have such a huge concentration of agenda-setting figures in the field uh, within short train distance away. So NYU, Columbia, Princeton, and Rutgers are all uh, top 10 programs. Uh, CUNY uh, is, is right up there as well. The New School has amazing resources. So we're really very uh, resource rich. And that means that not only do we have outstanding faculty from multiple institutions, including the very large and very talented CUNY faculty, but we also have student bodies from each of these places. I've never taught a seminar without several students uh, from the consortium. And I um, have benefited tremendously from their presence. My students have benefited from those conversations. But it's also been, for me, a constant source of pride in our own because we have some of the top programs around us, which means the top graduate students around us. And I have uh, consistently, semester after semester, uh, seen that our students rival the very best students uh, studying Western thought, Western philosophy uh, today. So it's really gratifying to see those interactions. When you are taking uh, classes, uh, do everything you can to make the, uh, the term papers you turn in uh, in some way relevant to your overall research project. Um, that won't always be the case, but when you can do it, it's great. Um, and uh, so I've had a number of things that I've worked on just that started out as term papers and ended up uh, being a substantial portion of a dissertation chapter. Um, and I think more important career-wise is to just start really early trying to uh, send stuff off uh, to be published if you can do it. Uh, of course, you need to get as much feedback as you can, but you really shouldn't wait too long. Um, uh, yeah, so those are the, the really important things. Um, also, you need to make sure that you have identified a number of professors that uh, 
whose work you respect and that whose input you really seek. And uh, from an early time, try and keep up a dialogue with them, sending them work, um, trying to get comments, uh, talk, going to their events. You know, it's a great idea to to make sure you're involved in the uh, in the department. Uh, I would agree completely with everything Ross said. Um, I, I would only add something that he's uh, he's too gracious to mention, which is that getting feedback from from faculty takes a lot of work, and um, I think it's you really need to be very very persistent. If you're looking for feedback, it may take a long time. It may require several emails. It may require knocking on doors. If you don't continually do that it's going to be a very lonely process and you're going to miss out on opportunities to get that feedback. And not just from your supervisor, but really from anyone who, who would possibly uh, listen or, or read your work. So we, we're resource rich in having all of these wonderful people around, but we don't take advantage of each other enough. And that's because everyone is very busy and it does take a tremendous amount of patience and persistence uh, to get that feedback sometimes. One thing I would recommend to, to students coming through the program is once you get into a rhythm of writing, it's not a bad idea to set up some kind of regular meeting time with your faculty advisors or conversation partners, because if you don't have that fixed in your schedule, it's very easy to let months and semesters go by uh, without producing anything and without getting feedback on the stuff that you do produce. Um, sometimes we do have a semester that's just a loss. That does happen, so don't beat up on yourself so much when it happens. Uh, but I do think uh, that uh, we can really all gain if everyone is proactive about trying to make sure that they're getting those uh, those head-to-head, mind-to-mind uh, moments uh, with members of, of the community. Oh, another thing I should mention that I found really helpful um, I have a friend who's also a, a graduate student, and uh, we made an agreement at one point to uh, produce at least three pages of writing every day um, for a period of time. And uh, I've never been more productive in my life than when I uh, had to either produce that three pages each day or pay him five bucks. That was our agreement. <laughs> so uh, if you can make, uh, if you can try and find other people to keep you accountable, whether it be the uh, your advisor or other faculty members or even other graduate students. Um, you got to make sure that you're accountable to other people in order to be accountable to yourself. So, yeah. I, I, I absolutely love that suggestion. I want to take you up on it. <laughs> uh, we really, I mean, working without a deadline, working without incentives is very, very hard. It's a self-motivated field, but really uh, incentives are an important part of getting things done. I have a colleague, Barbara Montero, who uh, works in a cafe near where I live every day. She just goes to the cafe, whether she has a project or a deadline or not, and there's no Wi-Fi there, and it's uh, a train ride from her apartment, so she can't not go. I mean, it's a trip. When she's there, she sits herself down, and some days she writes, some days she doesn't, but by having this built into her schedule, it increases her pro productivity, and she wrote a magnificent book uh, in, in a really an impressive um, short time, uh, doing that, and I think all of us can learn from those suggestions. Uh, if you just dedicate one hour a day, you know, we beat up on ourselves by not spending hours and hours each day writing, but actually if you spend one hour a day dedicated to writing, whether you get a page or a paragraph, 
that's going to set you on course for being extremely productive. So make those arrangements with yourselves and your friends, and you're likely to proceed at a pace that will make you proud. This has been Academically Speaking, presented by the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Subscribe on iTunes, follow us on SoundCloud, and visit us on the web at gc.cuny.edu slash podcast.